0: Hello and welcome to The Learner Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest this week is Maria Adelera Lopez, Executive Director at AEIO2, a social enterprise in Colombia. AEIO2 provides high quality, early childhood education and care, trains educators, creates resources, including a massive digital library for parents and teachers, and advocates for high quality early learning to local, regional, national governments. aeio 2 is interesting for a few reasons. It is a successful early childhood program that has scaled to over half a million children. An independent longitudinal study showed that kids who were in the program for only eight months showed significant gains in language and cognitive development compared to a control group not in the program. And aeio 2 has been the recipient of a ton of awards, including the 2018 Klaus J. Jacobs Award for Social Innovation and Engagement.
1: AEO2 has been, I think, and I'm saying this in a very humble way, but we've been a reference of good quality for the country. And we've been hand by hand, you know, with local, regional and the very high national key actors in the government, engaging in different conversations, dialogues, you know. So we promote, you know, the rights of the children. We promote how quality needs to be seen. We promote a vision of learning that is anchored in learning to play, in exploring in having fun, but also in a very holistic view of the child and how It happens not only in a classroom, but also in different settings.
0: But it's also a great example of how an organization can work outside the formal system to drive change within. Maria explains how they work bottom up. It's based in Reggio Emilia, which means they connect deeply with families and communities, and they help train early educators and parents everywhere. But she also works with the president and the minister of education and the minister of welfare. She talks about pivoting from a model where the centers for wealthy kids would subsidize the ones for poorer kids to a different model that allows the organization to stay focused on really serving low-income families. And their work seems to be paying off. Between 2007 and 2013, enrollment in early childhood education and care in Colombia among zero to five-year-olds, more than doubled from 16%, which was really low, to 41%, which is still low, but a dramatic improvement. Beyond systems change and the amazing science of early childhood, this episode is also really fun on a personal level. Maria had two dreams as a child, to be a teacher and to be an artist. She managed to do both, but the story of how she ended up in early childhood is fascinating and very Ken Robinson-esque. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Maria, thank you so much for being with
1: us. Oh, please, Jenny, this is my pleasure.
0: Let's start with the story of you. Tell us a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? What were your parents like? And how did you become a teacher and then very interested in the power of and the importance of early childhood?
1: I was born in Medellin. Medellin is the second biggest city in Colombia. I am the oldest of three children. Actually, my grandmother was a first and second grade teacher I was a very curious child, very much into exploration, into, you know, jumping trees, into role play. And I pretty much dreamed of being a teacher, which was one of my favorite plays when I I was a child. But also I loved, you know, dressing up. I loved making up stories. I had different imaginary friends. And uh, very, very young, I knew that I wanted to be an artist. So I became an artist. I am a visual artist. Then I I went to the United States, uh, to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts, to do my master's degrees in, in art. And then I became a teacher for the university. I actually, while I was studying here in Colombia, I was also teaching at the university. And uh, when I lived in Minnesota, I worked for St. John's University for the art department. And then my ex-husband, who used to live with me there, got an offer in Miami. And we thought it was very good to move down to Miami and get closer to Colombia. I also was a very active artist, exhibiting all the time, producing artwork. So I had to change Uh, And the experience I had at the university, Jenny, uh, uh, with my students, uh, got me with my colleagues at the university to uh, wonder what was happening because I had to spend a lot of time stimulating creative uh, thinking, stimulating imagination, fantasy, different uh, ways of expressing themselves. And when you decide to become an artist, it's not something that, you know, your dad tells you, go ahead. Be an artist and make a good living is something that you think that it comes from your heart, you know, from very much inside of you and um, we had very interesting discussions about it and understood that something was lacking in the early years. So I went into visiting the high schools, you know, talking to those teachers and uh, see that there was no place uh, in formal education for play. Uh, There was no place for observing, for being curious, for trying to to get answers, you know, in different ways. So I uh, decided that I wanted to explore, you know, uh, early education. And I got this job in Miami. As an atelierista, uh, which means uh, an artist working in early childhood center inspired in the Reggio Emilia philosophy. So, since uh, 2000, I began as an atelierista of the centers, and I thought that it was going to be, you know, like temporary. But once I knew the children and the culture of early childhood, how these children were so curious you know, trying to understand the world, trying to make lots of different questions and how the teachers were uh, wondering all the time on how can we, you know, trigger even more that curiosity of the children. I, I said to myself, well, this is where my place is and I love it. And I dedicated myself, my mission, my purpose to the early childhood culture. And since then, I've been working with teachers and leaders in education uh, until 2008, that I came back to Colombia to work for IAO2 as the pedagogical director.
0: Let's just put Aeio 2 in the context of Colombia. So the basis of Aeio 2 is play-based, exploratory, Reggio Emilia learning, this exploration and sort of let children be who they are and really kind of encourage that creativity. Is that the way a typical early childhood center in Colombia would be run?
1: No, definitely not, Jenny. Of course, in the year of 2008, when io 2 was born, it was born as a social enterprise, actually, that wanted to transform communities in an innovative and sustainable way uh, to develop the full potential of children. And uh, they went into know different pedagogical approaches, different educational models, and found the Reggio Emilia approach. And they fall in love with it because of the connection with the community, because the participation of the families, because of the image of the child that was a child capable, you know, protagonist of their own life and this collaborative, you know, process between the teachers and the families and the children. So in those days, the Reggio Emilia approach was not very well known. There were uh, other organizations uh, bringing the approach to Colombia, but You know, in those days, uh, Jenny, the country didn't talk about quality of education, didn't talk about what is really people understanding by learning context of of the children, uh, not really talking about what was really important to develop the potential of children and the five. I was raised and educated by a very traditional Mindsets in which you just needed to learn how to write, how to read, and uh, being um, well taken care of.
0: What age do children typically go to school in Colombia?
1: Formal education starts at five, and then you have early childhood education that is zero to five. So when you talk about schools, so you know, early childhood educational environment is for children zero to five, and then we uh, enter to formal education
0: in the zero to five. Would that be teaching them to read in a more traditional setting?
1: Yeah, very very conductive, traditional setting in which teacher is just transmitting you know knowledge and making sure that the the children uh, develop fine motor skills, gross motor skills, all right? But there were no intentionality on how the relationships, the interactions were uh, happening, no? So when IO2 came in 2008 for us was absolutely important to understand first, what was quality for the service that we were bringing and what kind of Uh, variables were important for us to to think of, just to think about comprehensive service. So we were very much focused on having nutrition, uh, having good self-care and care for the children, and of course, a very focused and determined pedagogical approach. But also for us, was important to think on the professional development of the teachers, of the adults that were with the children, also the spaces, you know, how materials, resources needed to become also opportunities for learning, but also how could we involve the community, involve the families into what is happening inside the children's learning processes, but also, to make sure that there was an operation taking place in a very organized, disciplined way, very well structured, and also to engage the schools into understanding how the expectations of the children were. And talking you know, about this, it was important then uh, understanding what was the government mindset, points of view of what was happening in the service and start in dialogue with national, local governments and also other actors just to understand, you know, how the early childhood ecosystem was. For us then was starting this strategy in which we were going to open early childhood centers for high income, also middle income families, low income families in a private and public settings. So we were aiming to have a crop subsidiary strategy in which we could also show that it was important to close the social gap between low-income children and high-income children with, you know, the fact that No matter where children's conditions are, they are all deserve the right is to have a fair and equitable start to life.
0: Sounds like a researcher's dream from the standpoint of looking at two totally different socioeconomic groups in similar settings and sort of tracking those. I feel like James Heckman must be sort of, you know, doing cartwheels somewhere, thinking about the prospect. You know,
1: Jenny, we brought Jane Heckman in 2009 with Carlina Rinaldi from Reggio in partnership with the government. So we will, you know, advocate and promote the importance of investing in early childhood education, but not any education, high quality one and focused on interactions, focused on how you build relationships with the children, with the families, with the community and how the community is a very important factor for that.
0: So just to let our listeners know, James Heckman is a Nobel laureate who has made the economic case for investing in early childhood, that if you invest a dollar in early childhood, you get a return of seven or eight dollars. It's one of the highest social return programs that we can do. You have four lines of your work. You have your public and private centers. You do consulting work, which is training and helping partners. You're building this digital learning platform, which we'll talk about, and you do advocacy. So you've sort of mentioned these. I'd love to maybe talk a little bit about each of those because they're quite different, but they all kind of come together. The centers themselves, if we walked in right now, what would we see?
1: Well, right now in Colombia, it's 10.51 a.m., and the children will be in the park playing freely, Or they can be in the classrooms doing project-based learning. They could be in small groups. You could find some of them painting on the wall because they are researching themselves because the year just started. So they are understanding who this group is, what kind of differences they have, how is the identity of this classroom. And some others will be, you know, just writing letters to the children that are Coming uh, new to the classroom next week, you will be seeing the teachers near to them, you know, triggering, asking questions, making available some other tools, just listening to what the children are saying, what discussions are taking place so they can take these conversations, you know, further and foster the critical thinking that there is always inside the hypothesis of, of the children. You could also see a group of children are also in the kitchen, helping them to prepare lunch, but also intriguing about what lunch is going to be and help the organization of all the you know settings in the dining room area. You can see perhaps one teacher documenting what is happening, perhaps two parents or caregivers uh, talking in the hallway because it's Friday and they are preparing a party for next week and they are involving other children into invitations. You know, it's uh, it's the flow of the day in which you see and you feel this very, very playful experience happening, children talking a lot.
0: And does the model of the wealthy schools subsidizing the lower-income ones, does that work financially? Have you found that to be a successful business model?
1: We are still working on that. We have been operating under this model for 13 years, and we have been evaluated, actually, with a longitudinal study. And and then we thought that we were going to have more private centers, high-income families, uh, less public centers, and we ended up having more public centers and less private ones because we became reference of good practice. But then we were almost to reach, you know, as today, more than almost 500,000 children, great impact, but not the sustainability that we wanted. So in 2016, thanks to the support of Ashoka, Ashoka, for example and lego foundation we went into a great process of rethinking wow. the strategy of iao 2 aiming to become more sustainable and then we decided then not only to have private centers subsidized centers or direct operation but also to offer the consultancies training to others and the special projects that are aiming actually to have systemic change, profound transformations in the communities, in which we work with other stakeholders within the community, other funders, we, with consultancies, we develop capacities for leaders, for teachers. That is uh, also making profit. And IO2 is now being able to make profit from projects, consultancies, private centers, and also from all the online resources and courses that we offer through the digital platform. So, right now, I can declare you happily that in 2023, we are going to be a sustainable social enterprise that is reaching by 2023, almost one million children.
0: So the pivot really was away from that direct subsidy model into a service operation now. Yes. Let's talk about the digital platform because pre-COVID, digital wasn't something that I think any early childhood expert would think favorably of. So much of Early childhood is about human interaction, but even before COVID, you were building this platform. So what is this digital platform and how is it helping your organization?
1: We anticipate the future when the pandemic hit, because in 2018, we were actually dreaming on having this learning community in which we could share our knowledge and experience with others and do it in a very open source. In 2019, then we were in the steps of designing it and thinking what kind of content were the teachers needing or different organizations. And in 2020, when we entered this uh, pandemic, we decided, well, we have to make these sources available for everybody and we need to understand what is a service that we can provide in a virtual way. And then we understood also that we needed to think about parents, not only caregivers, teachers, but also about parents, because the learning environment in those days were actually happening at home. And the good thing is that our educational experience that is anchored in play, exploration, art, in the participation of families, gave us like the fundamentals for it. So we then were able to design more than 1,200 content for teachers and for parents. Nowadays, we have more than 12,000 users that are becoming, you know, this community of practitioners in which we are with them, you know, creating a global network that is in dialogue with IO2, uh, sharing our principles, sharing the values that we think are very, very important in terms of our relationship with the children. And because we are then, since last year, designing courses, then is also giving profit to IO2. There is also an online store in which everybody can access to the pedagogical and didactical tools that we have developed through all these uh, years and the good thing here jenny is or i think the most powerful one is the continuous conversation that we can have with different teachers around different contexts you know teachers that are in the private sector in the in the public sector, teachers that are actually at home from family programs, from uh, institutional programs, understanding what are their interests or their needs in order for us to really offer a place in which we share documentation, in which we share our points of views and we learn you know, from each other
0: even not in a pandemic, zero to two, you're often at home anyway. Many parents are very much in the dark about what they're doing. I put myself in this category when I had my kids, you know, you're looking for guidance as to what to do. This sounds like a tool that's quite future-proof, right? I mean, it's a tool that we really needed.
1: Absolutely. And it's a tool in which if you are a mom of two-year-old, Jenny, you can go there, just register yourself, And you will have a component specifically for parents in which you will ask questions. For example, party training. How can I make this fun? Or for example, what kind of interactions I can engage while I'm making dinner? Or let's say a brother or sister is expecting to be born. Uh, So how we welcome uh, our sister and how can we then manage the jealousy? You have podcasts, you have videos, uh, you have actually stories to be listened or stories to be read. It is interactive. You can ask questions.
0: Do you know of English language resources that are similar to this?
1: We admire, for example, very much Ubongo, which is an organization based in Africa. They have beautiful characters and they have also great resources. There is also Tools of the Mind, which is an organization that has great resources for parents and teachers. Also, the round Glass Collective Learning uh, that actually IEO2 is part of, and we develop masterclasses. For uh, educators, for parents, specifically, IO2 develop uh, masterclasses focused on play and movement from zero to five. But you also can find masterclasses on playful experiences with different art languages, math, science.
0: If we had sort of zero to 10, zero completely clueless, 10, the most sort of child infant, zero to five friendly country in the world understands the import of it, supports it through policies and practices. Where is Colombia right
1: now? I have to say that in these 13 years, Colombia has grown a lot. Listen, when we began, the pay per child from the government was around $300 per year. Now it's around $1,000 per year. In 2016, we signed a public policy for early childhood education. And Colombia is... One of the few countries in Latin America that has a public policy in place. So we now have a comprehensive service in which every service provider needs to commit to because there are clarity in those uh, guidelines, because uh, there is also a national evaluation on how Colombia is in terms of giving quality of education. Now, it doesn't mean that everything is working very well, because still we have more than half of the children that are not having or access education or that education they access is very, very poor. So there is a lot of challenges in terms of access, in terms of quality in education, and also in terms of qualification of teachers you know, and professionals in, uh, for early childhood education iao 2 has been, I think, and I'm saying this in a very humble way, but we've been a reference of good quality for the country. And we've been hand by hand, you know, with local, regional, and very high national key actors in the government, engaging in different conversations, dialogues, you know. So we promote, you know, the rights of the children. We promote how quality needs to be seen. We promote... A vision of learning that is anchored in learning through play, in exploring, in having fun, but also in a very holistic view of the child and how it happens not only in a classroom, but also in different settings. So, with IO2, the government has been also able to engage more actively in CSDs in a very systemic way in which we need to involve different stakeholders from the private sector, from the, you know, big corporations that are influencing their territories where they are and that they can invest also in a quality education and also give the service to their employees, no? And also to attract and mobilize other international cooperators, we believe that we cannot do it alone. Jenny it cannot be just done by the teachers or by the educational leaders. It needs to be done by the health department, by the cultural department, by the different you know sectors in which we need to work together in terms of sharing the vision of what early childhood needs.
0: I think every country needs a department of children that draws on health and education. Let me just clarify one thing. When you said more than half of children don't have access to education or it's poor, were you talking about early childhood education or all education?
1: I am talking about early childhood education. Yeah.
0: I remember a Brazilian lawmaker who ultimately became a supporter of early childhood education saying he was shocked to find out that zero to five was the most important period for brain development. And I quote, I thought kids were like plants. You had to water them and (laughs) feed them and they would grow. And then you sent them to school to be educated. And I laugh, but I think a lot of people thought that for a long time. And I'm curious if you think the mindset of parents is changing.
1: Little by little, we're getting there. I think there is a lot to do in terms of understanding really what is needed for the children because children need intentional interactions. Children need a giving and taking, you know, kind of interactions. Children need adults that really understand how is the developmental process of them and also need to have adults that take them into consideration and respect what they are as human beings, right? I think that this government is understanding that and the uh, guidelines of the public policy uh, have that vision the uh, challenge is in practice challenge is how you close that gap you know between the conceptual frame of a public policy and what is really happening in practice and also the challenges in rural areas where you know, access is very, very difficult because most of the children that are not having access is because they live, you know, in rural areas, very difficult to to reach schools or different pedagogical scenarios. So, for example, Jenny, in 2019, we had a round table, thanks to the support of LEGO Foundation, in which we were able to talk to the president, to talk to the Ministry of Education, to talk to the well-being institution here in Colombia and come together to design and structure a project aiming to really have a systemic change, to work with the teachers, work with the leaders, trying to change practice and also train change makers and also do this all advocacy for local and national authorities. And right now we are implementing this project side by side with Ministry of Education, ICBF organization in Colombia, and the presidency office, along with a consortium that is by IO2, by P.S. Descalzos Foundation, and by University of Los Andes. And this is very innovative, because for the first time in Colombia, you have government and private organizations working together towards believing in the importance of learning to play, and most of all, into the importance of having a comprehensive quality service for the children, in which different key partners are involved. So it is from the bottom up. You work with the teacher, you work with the families, bringing resources, you know, improving ordinary life, having an educational experience that is anchored in executive functions, in uh, 21st skills in which we really, really develop uh, creativity, leadership, critical thinking, problem solving skills that are essential for the children to be successful in life and to be successful leaders of their own lives and for them to become also, you know, agents of change. But for this, you really need to have a mindset that is shared by all the adults that are around them by not only the teacher but all you know the different actors that are around
0: i definitely want to talk about one more thing before we do run out of time and that's covid-19 and the impact on infants and toddlers 0 to 5 there seems to be evidence now that there have been real developmental delays the kids are, it really did suffer what have you observed and what should we do
1: The learning processes and growth processes of the children happen everywhere, all the time. They just don't happen in the school environment. It happened at home with you, while you are taking a shower or while you are making dinner. And also happened when you have conversation with your children, when you really, really get to know them, how they are, how they express, what is their language. Right. And when you give confidence and you trust in them, when you look at them into the eyes and you give value to what they are. And when it doesn't happen at home, well, the social emotional issues within the children flourish, you know, and very often we undermine them because we are expecting different skills. We expect that children you know, learn colors and say the letters of the alphabet. But we really need just to think that the children need a proper environment, a safe one to grow, and that the safe environment depends on every person that is there around being respectful, being taken care of, being confident on on what they are, taking care of what their identity is and how their relationship is really building and that is complex and it's not easy Jenny because for us as adults what we think first is how can I teach the children but I really need to think first on what I need to teach myself in order to really have a proper interaction with my children. But do you see a negative impact on children from COVID? Of course and there is a learning loss There are higher indicators of family violence, social, emotional, you know, mental health that we need to trigger. For example, children with disabilities have been absolutely forgotten and the children 0 to 2 have been very much forgotten also during the pandemic because we still need to work a lot on what is the importance of 0 to 5 education. And the parents, you know, lost the jobs. Many women had to quit in order to take care of their children, and perhaps just only pay the formal education, formal school, not the early childhood, you know, setting. We absolutely need to make conscious of this, and most of all, to really promote the importance of having the children going into the schools, going into the pedagogical scenarios going there means that they play with other children, that the, the social interactions that are happening are also key element for the children to grow and learn. And that is not happening, you know, when you are in front of the screen or just interacting with your sister or your brother, you need your friends, you need that kind of conflict that the part gives you. You need air, you need movements, you need different smells, you need different experiences because the learning happens when you experience life.
0: I think people are looking for assurance that are they going to be okay? Or is this whole generation of kids just going to be really quite behind? Do you have a sense of that?
1: I don't think we have, uh, but I think we need to be hopeful, okay? And we need to make make sure that it is within our hands uh, to bring the learning environment and experiences that the children need and that we cannot just be focused on accelerate the skills for them to be successful in the school and to recover the loss. What we need is to understand how is this really impacting the life of every child and start building confidence again and start designing playful experiences for the children to be feel confident again because we need emotion and because we need curiosity and because we need joy and because this uh, needs to be in the whole home environment and also in the classroom environment and then little by little children will acquire all the skills that they will need. And most of all, they will also wanting to learn because that is what we really need to achieve is for the children to be motivated, to be eager, to learn. When when a child is curious and asks questions, then you are stimulating intelligence you're stimulating neurological activity and then children we will get there so i am hopeful and i think that depends very much on us on in our interactions with the children to really get where we need to be all of us in terms of becoming better human beings we cannot give this responsibility only to the teachers or to the children the responsibility is in each of us, in how we converse, how we, you know, engage in playful, beautiful, meaningful interactions with the children.
0: So let's end on this. What is your favorite book about learning?
1: I love uh, Terry Smith and I love Carrie Smith's books on exploration and how you find different ways of finding meaning to life. And she's fun and is very interactive,
0: your favorite book, not about learning.
1: Well, I love Garcia Marquez, Jenny. I love A 100 Years of Solitude, definitely. And I love Cunderas also. I think it's a very good inspiration for us as educators too. Milan Kundera. Yeah. And what are you binge watching? Well, I just saw Encanto actually last week. And what did you think? Oh, I loved it. I love the music and I love the magic and I love the colors.
0: I think we could all use a little bit of magic right now. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Oh, Jenny, thank you so much. It's been fun. I saw the president of Colombia speak at Davos a few
0: years ago. He'd won a Nobel Prize for his work brokering peace in the country. But he spent his session at Davos with the Global Glitterati talking about the power of education and in particular, early childhood education. It was, to say the least, refreshing. I spent a few years reporting on how the neuroscience of early childhood was being translated into policies to support families around the world. What was shocking to me was how strong the evidence was. From conception to age three is the richest period of brain development, laying the architecture for learning and emotional regulation. There's a strong economic case, and of course, a moral one. There's also an educational one, In the UK, 40% of the attainment gap that exists between advantaged and disadvantaged pupils at the age of 16 emerges before children even get to school. If we could close that gap with high quality early learning, more children would be equipped to succeed in school. But everyone loves babies until it's time to pay for them. Babies and toddlers don't vote and however compelling the science is, early childhood happens to be 15 to 20 years before employment. COVID made babies even more invisible. They were not at serious risk of illness or dying, And they didn't miss out on school. And yet early childhood is finally having its moment. And that is in no small part because of people like Maria and the work of organizations like AEIO2 showing us what is possible, being tactical about supporting early educators and parents, pivoting where needed on business model, on technology, and engaging everyone from mothers in rural Colombian communities to the president of the country. She said she was hopeful, but her hope stems from all of us not just from teachers and policy makers. It very much depends on us, she said. The responsibility is in each of us, how we converse, how we talk, how we engage in playful, beautiful, meaningful interactions with children. I also loved her line about children being the protagonist of their own stories. They will be if we create the right environment for them to do it. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.